This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Poets and Parables. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move on to a deep dive on a questioner category in one of those episodes. And then we wrap it up with a quiz. So this week we are looking at April 20th through April 24th, 2020. So on Monday, April 20th, we get the contestants Andrew Kramer, a program manager from Seattle, Washington, Ben Sunday, a quantitative developer and trader from Chicago, Illinois, and Felicity Flesher, a screenwriter from Studio City, California, whose two-day cash winnings total $32,200. And we start off with the categories A History of Charity, Literary Terms, Roll With It, That's Entertainment, Differs by a Letter, and questions from a 1927 quiz book. Uh, the quiz book in question is Ask Me Another. Yeah, that's fun that they're just straight up pulling questions from another source. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. At least they cited it, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And it's been a while since we've seen Felicity. It's it's always, it's always a little weird coming back from a, a tournament to have the returning champion and, and be like, oh, yeah. I remember this person, and now it feels like they've been winning a really long time because I remember them from three weeks ago. Yep. I think I used to imagine that uh, if you were a returning champion coming back after a tournament, you would have gotten extra time to study. Um, That's not how Jeopardy taping schedules actually work. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. The only person who definitely gets extra time to study is the one who is the returning champion at the beginning of a new season. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the tournaments I think are often taped kind of out of sync with the rest of the taping schedule, right? I think so. They, I think they have a different turnaround, but I'm not sure. But good to see Felicity back. Yeah. Yeah. She was, she was fun to watch. In that, uh, 1927 quiz book category at the thousand dollar level, the clue was best known for his many portraits like the one seen here, this three-named American painter died in London in 1925. Uh, I didn't need to see the picture for me to guess John Singer Sargent, because Jeopardy loves John Singer Sargent. And that was a question that I did not get in on during my own run. Hmm. It was a game against uh, Amanda and Bucky. Bucky got in on that one. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. But they yeah. they like John Singer Sargent. So especially three named American painter. Like, got it. Yeah. I had not noticed that uh, that he was um, a Jeopardy favorite. But now that you mention it, that rings true. Mm-hmm. Also, Robbie Burns. Just, mm, just yes. saying, if there's a Scottish yeah. poet, it's Robbie Burns. Yeah. Yeah. Has anyone else from Scotland ever composed poetry, really? Uh-huh. Uh, according to Jeopardy, no. Yeah. Uh, we get the first Daily Double in the History of Charity category. It's the $400 level clue. It's pick number 15. Andrew found it, and he wagered everything he had. He was at 3400 ahead of Felicity's 1800 and Ben's 400 uh, So he was in a decent lead. 
and he got the clue the people who founded this organization in 1976 had previously built a bunch of homes in Zaire. And he correctly identified that it is Habitat for Humanity. So he doubled up there, gave himself a nice, nice cushion. Andrew gets some more clues correct. Felicity gets some more clues correct. Uh, and at the end of the Jeopardy round, Andrew is in the lead at 8,000. Felicity is in second at 4,000. And Ben is trailing at 600. Uh, they did leave four clues on the board in the Jeopardy round, which was a bit disappointing. Mm-hmm. In Double Jeopardy, they get the categories Flea Circus, F-L-E-E, Sports Talk, Doggone Words, which each correct response will begin with a type of dog, Country of the Bridge, I am a title, I am in quotes, and the Electoral College. And man... I had such a hard time with that doggone words category. It was tricky. It, yeah. It really, I mean, it was, yeah, the contestants had a hard time too. It just. The contestants just had a rough double Jeopardy round. Um, that's Looking tr- at the that's total true. score <laughs> at the end of the Jeopardy round, they had totaled between the three of them 12600 which is about two thirds of the money on the board. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, their combined score, if you add together all three of them, was 14,800. So they had, between the three of them, they had only picked up 2,200 more dollars from the 36,000 that are available on the double Jeopardy board. Yeah, Um, and and they did leave the five of the six uh, $400 clues on the board. But even so, Um, yeah, this was a rough game for everyone. Yep. So the second Daily Double, the first of the Double Jeopardy round, comes up as the second pick in the Country of the Bridge category at the $1,600 level. Ben finds it and makes it a true Daily Double with $1,800 uh, to Andrew's $8,000 and Felicity's $2,800. He gets the clue, the Bridge of the Americas, not the one in Sicario. And he... Uh, struggles with it for a little bit um he ended up saying what is mexico Uh, the correct response there is panama yep so he drops to nothing but there's plenty of time left in the round uh that that bridge category that was real rough i know i said the whole round was rough but uh so the 800 dollars clue the original bridge of size uh was a triple stumper no one rang in that's in italy Mm -hmm. uh twelve hundred dollar clue the jacques cartier bridge uh Felicity guessed what is France. That's incorrect. Ben got it correct with what is uh, Canada. Then we have the Daily Double that you just talked about. And the $2,000 clue, Victoria Falls Bridge, two countries, please. Uh, Andrew rang in. He got Zimbabwe, but he did not get to Zambia. So a uh, mm-hmm. whole bunch of money lost in that category. Yeah. Counterintuitively, they they did reasonably well on the bottom row of the board. Um Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, four, four or six, uh, and that's that's not bad. Yeah. The third Daily Double still came pretty early in the round. Uh, it was pick number eight. It's in the Electoral College category. Uh, ben found this one as well, uh, and he wagered all of his now 1,600, so he had gotten another 1,600 from his zero. Uh, he was still in second place at that point because Felicity was at 1,200 and Andrew was at 4,400, so not that far behind. Uh, you get the clue, 
a third-party candidate hasn't won a state in a presidential election since 1968 when this American Independent Party nominee carried Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, and his native Alabama. And he correctly identified George Wallace. Mm -hmm. George Wallace, who uh, probably, aside from that fact, most most famously uh, as the antagonist in the, the whole, basically, uh, uh, civil rights movement <laughs> right story that is not a good place to be in history nope. bad choice nope. i knew a sports thing uh in the sports talk category at the 1600 dollar level water polo players stay afloat with this kick that sounds like it could help to scramble an omelet that's uh the egg beater kick mm-hmm. um i was a uh, a swimming teacher all through high school and college. Um, I also was a synchronized swimmer really? for about a year. Uh, Have we talked about this before? To... Maybe briefly. I don't think I don't recall this. Um, yeah, I did synchronized swimming. Synchronized swimming uses the egg beater kick quite mm-hmm. a bit as well. Because mm-hmm. it helps you stay stationary, right mm-hmm. above the water. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Yeah. I've talked about on the podcast before never being able to remember the Circus Maximus, but I remembered the Circus Maximus this time. The nice eight, work. Yeah, the $800 clue and flea circus. In 64 AD, a fire broke out in Rome in the shops surrounding this large hippodrome, no doubt causing many to flee. I was like, hippodrome in Rome. I remember this now, finally, after getting it wrong, I don't know how many dozens of times in my life. All right. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Felicity is in the lead with 6,800. Andrew is in second place with 5,200. Ben is trailing with 2,800, but they are all in the game. And we get the final Jeopardy category, recent movie songs. And the clue is, in October 2019, this song, a duet, was still in the top 10 on Billboard's adult contemporary chart after spending a year on the chart. And I got this one because I have blown it in a pub quiz before. Um, <laughs> and as we've said many times, the shame of getting it wrong in a competition is what really burns it into your memory. That's right. Um, so Ben had it correct uh, with what is shallow. Um, and he had wagered 401 Dollars, bringing himself up to 3,201. Andrew had what is Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper's duet, which is pretty close to what I wrote down in the pub quiz. <laughs> um, uh, he'd wagered 1601, so he dropped to 3599. Felicity has wagered $3,700 and put what is into the deep. Anyway, uh, that's not correct. So she drops down to 3,100, and Andrew is our champion going into Tuesday. Yeah. So do you think Ben's wager of 401, do you think that was a good bet? Okay, so Ben is trying to get ahead of where Felicity will land if she makes a cover bet and gets it wrong. Yeah, Um, okay. Which he did. uh, That's fair. Yes. Yeah, Felicity has been making uh, a little bit more than a cover bet uh, so that instead of landing with at like a dollar what one dollar more than twice the second place's score she wants to land like a hundred dollars more I think that's maybe um, maybe she's more comfortable doing the math with rounder 
numbers. Mm-hmm. So I think what Ben didn't take into account here, he was thinking about getting ahead of Felicity if she missed it. He did not think about getting ahead of Andrew. Andrew here wants to stay above 3200 so he should not wager more than 2000 and he wants to cover Ben's double up so he wants to wager at least 400 I think the main thing that happened here is that Ben thought very carefully about Felicity but not as carefully about Andrew um, hmm. because his wager assumes that Andrew's going to wager pretty large mm-hmm. and that and that's not necessarily the case. A 400-ish dollar wager from Andrew would have been sufficient. Um, and so Ben probably should have gone bigger. Yeah, because it's um, not like Ben would have to get it right still to be able to beat Felicity. Yeah, Andrew didn't necessarily need to drop within within range of Ben winning in a triple stumper. So, rough break for Ben. Tough game for everyone, though. Yeah, tough game for everybody. Just across the board. So. Probably not how any of them wanted their Jeopardy experience to go. So, on Tuesday, we get Gary Patton, a screenwriter and actor from Los Angeles, California. Sidra Condren, a marketing manager from Phoenix, Arizona. And Andrew Kramer, a program manager from Seattle, Washington. These one-day cash winnings total $3,599. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, the Field Marshal Plan, Legalese, Achievement Unlocked, which I think went over Alex's head, uh, three-letter words, Lit Puri, and a pitch for a happier moving in ending. So we've had two days in a row here where the contestants are avoiding the top row of blues. Mm, yeah. Seems okay. It's a strategy. Yeah. The top row almost never has those daily doubles Um, yeah so if you want to give yourself an edge to uh uncover those i guess avoiding the top row could be part of that strategy achievement unlocked was kind of a weird category Um, yeah it's just things that people did pretty much yeah (laughs) at the 800 dollars level we had in 1914, this Belarusian-born man painted the praying Jew, also called the Rabbi of Vitebsk. Uh, that is Chagall. Anytime you see Jewish painter on Jeopardy, that's going to be Chagall, pretty sure. But yeah, I, I sort of expected Achievement Unlocked to be like awards or like world records. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, really, it was just like this person or group of people did this thing. Yep. Not to minimize Chagall's great achievements in art. Right, right. But but yeah, it, it, they only seemed unified by being about things people did. <laughs> Much like those categories where we're like, well, that's just another way of saying trivia. Trivia, yeah. Like, facts. It's like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's Jeopardy. Everything hope, on here better be a fact. Hope, yeah. It's, if it's not, you're going to have some trouble. So we get the first daily double in the legalese category at the $800 level. Andrew finds it and makes it a true daily double with $1,800. Sidra has $600 at that point. Gary has $5,600, so Andrew has some catching up to do. 
And he gets the clue, this two-word Latin phrase means way of operating and shows a pattern of criminal behavior. And he correctly responds, what is modus operandi? Yeah, you being the more uh, linguistic person than me. Is it operandi or operandi? It's, if you're going to pronounce it like Latin, it is operandi. Okay. Similarly, a group of male or uh, of mixed gender alums of a school is alumni, and a group of female graduates of a school is alumni. Um, oh, like but, a- A-E. I, yeah, because the, yeah. A- because the A-E is pronounced I, mm-hmm. um, whereas the I is pronounced E. Mm. Um, so really, that's yes. just a bit of uh, subtle feminism in there. Yes, nice. I'm sure that's what everyone means by it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Did he say operandi? I he did say he did say operandi, and a lot of people do. So, just I was just curious because I I'm not confident in those rules. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Gary is in the lead with eight thousand eight hundred. Andrew is in second place with four thousand two hundred. Sidra has two thousand two hundred, and we get the double Jeopardy categories: James Taylor, his life and music, world geography, Silicon Valley, Be in the middle. Famous names and around the garden. Categories like the B in the middle, I always kind of wonder about those. Like when they say the middle, do they really mean the exact middle or do they just mean it's within the word? Uh, mm. This category, at least, it is the exact middle. There are an equal number of letters on each side of the B uh, yes. in, in those responses, which we get in the $800 clue to pay back or refund. Andrew guesses what is a rebate, but... There are two letters in front of the B and three letters after the B in rebate. Uh, And the response they were looking for is reimburse. Yes. My brain went to debit, which does have a B exactly in the middle, but I don't think quite means payback or refund. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a payback or refund can be a debit, I think. Sure. But that's not a payback or refund is not, Mm -hmm. I think, a good definition for the word debit. So that would have been wrong. Yeah. I liked the James Taylor category. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was good. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Yeah. Uh they did start out there with the first two picks and uh maybe it's because I'm doing the outtakes reel this week, but one of the outtakes I'm talking about I'm I'm making the mistake of uh saying that you should or should not go for the video clues at a certain time and mm-hmm. I had it completely wrong. Yeah. Don't go for them. At the beginning of the double Jeopardy round. Right, exactly. Um, and they did end up having four clues unplayed at the end of the double Jeopardy round. Yep. And we theorize that uh, that the judges would have let the clock keep running until all those James Taylor clues were used. Yeah. Um, if they had left them for the end. Mm-hmm. We get the second daily double in the Silicon Valley uh, category. It's the $2,000 level. Andrew finds it, and he is in second place. He's at $10,600. Cedra is trailing at $4,600, and Gary is in the lead at $14,400. Andrew wagers a mere $1,200. The clue is this extremely soft silicate with a hardness of one is ground up to make a popular body powder. And he uh, gets it right. He says, what is talc? The low end of the Mohs hardness scale. That seemed straightforward for an, an ostensibly $2,000 level clue. Um, yeah, that's that's how I felt. There were a number of clues yeah. this week that I was like, 
again, I, I wonder if the the writers are potentially putting them there as buzzer tests more than as difficulty. I yeah. Don't, I don't know. It's it's always hard to gauge the actual difficulty of a question because it really, you know, depends on if the people know it or not. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, but that seemed that seemed more... Um, more common knowledge. Yeah. We get Daily Double 3 as the 25th pick at the $1,200 level of Around the Garden. Gary finds it and wagers 2,000 of his 14,000. Um, at that point, Andrew has 11,400. Sidra has 4,600. Um, so he'll still have a lead if he misses. Uh, he gets the clue. Charles Darwin called this divine carnivorous plant of the Americas one of the most wonderful plants in the world. And he correctly responds, what is a Venus flytrap? Mm-hmm. We had one of those for a while. Ooh. Cool. Yeah. Somebody bought one from the botanical garden and gave it to my six-year-old son as a birthday present. Uh, that was cool. Cool. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My kids kept feeding it ants, and it turns out that it couldn't really, it was a little bitty baby Venus flytrap. It couldn't really handle the ants. Mm. Um, so yeah. I mean, what do you start? What's what's a baby formula for a Venus flytrap? I think like fruit flies. Oh yeah, that's true. Make sure the yeah. baby gets lots yeah, they... of fruit at the beginning. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The instructions that I that I looked up said to try and capture like very small, like very fruit flies or other very small flying insects, trap them, and then somehow release them still alive into the little baby Venus flytrap mouths. Um, that. And- is. A, I couldn't do that, and B, my kids just really liked feeding the thing ants and watching the, the little jaws snap shut. Um, <laughs> but it was a really, really fun plant to have for a while. Definitely recommend as a present for um, for a kid around that age. Nice. All right. So at the end of the right. double Jeopardy round, Andrew is in second place. He's at 11,400. Sidra's in third place at 4,600, and Gary is in the lead at 16,800. They get the category Contemporary Authors, and the clue is Publishers Weekly has dubbed this former middle school English teacher turned best-selling author, quote, Storyteller of the Gods. And Sidra bet it all, and she correctly identified who is Rick Riordan. Uh, who is the author of the Percy Jackson books. Mm-hmm. Andrew wagered 5401. He guessed who is Percy Jackson. Um, turns out they are not autobiographies. <laughs> and then he said, hi, baby Betty. He's going to get a talking to from the producers about writing on extra things. No, he's not. I feel like they've been getting looser about that. Um, the more time as, that has passed since... The more time has that has passed since uh, since James Holtower's run. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's incorrect. So he drops down. And then Gary uh, wagered 6,001. That is a cover bet. And he also got Rick Riordan. So he is the champion with 22,801. So going into Wednesday, we have Sharon Lawson, an administrative assistant from Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. Michael Torman, a funeral director from Pawpaw, Illinois. And Gary Patton a screenwriter and actor from Los Angeles, California, whose one-day cash winnings totaled $22,801. And we get the Jeopardy! categories. A marriage made in literature. Adjectives. Earth Day at 50. 
episodes of the sitcom, the crime of the decade, and what sort of establishment is this? I liked this board. This this yeah, this was, game seemed a, a bit more fun. Not that Jeopardy isn't like fun pretty much all the time, but there see it seemed I don't know just a little bit lighter. I'll agree with that. So we get the first daily double. Uh, pick number one. Gary just nothing but net. First pick. It's the daily double. It's at the eight hundred dollar level in the crime of the decade category. Uh, he has uh, he's in a tie with uh, the other two at zero. So he wagers a thousand, uh, and he gets the clue, the kidnapping of Charles and Anne Lindbergh's baby, and he guesses what are the 1920s, but it is the 1930s. Yep. Yeah, so Lindbergh made his fame in the 20s, I believe. Yes. And the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby was after that, which I think was the trap for that question. Yeah. Didn't take him too long to make it back up out of the hole, though. He got the $1,000 question right below it, mm-hmm. and uh, then was back to where he started. Yeah. But back, rough break. Back into a tie for first place. I was surprised in what sort of establishment is this um, at the $600 level. If you encounter a meet and three establishment in the American South, the three refers to these. It was a triple stumper. Those are the side dishes. Uh, a meet and three is like a place where you where you choose your your protein entree and specify what three side dishes you want. Sometimes they're referred to as vegetables, although sometimes your vegetables are like mac and cheese, baked beans, and like something else that's also not really a vegetable. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, uh, that's something I know because I married a southerner, but also feels intuitive to me, but maybe it felt like a, like a trap. Yeah, to me, I didn't. I I had no idea, and I I don't. I would not have rang in and guessed side dishes because in my mind they're looking for something a bit more specific mm. than that. That makes sense if you were if you were thinking of like a particular kind of combination of yeah side dishes or something. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about the good place before. We had the good place. Oh yeah, we on did. Uh, on this one. Yeah. And the episodes of the sitcom category at the $600 level, Leap to Faith and the Worst Possible Use of Free Will, were the episodes. They could they didn't know it. Um, Michael guessed what is Quantum Leap. Sharon guessed what is Curb Your Enthusiasm. And uh, Gary didn't hazard a guess. Um, but yeah, that is The Good Place. Great show. Great show. We don't need to talk too much about it again. But Kristen Bell, if you wanted to come on the show... You are more than welcome. We're here for it. Or yeah. really any anybody. I mean, I'd, I'd take Jamila or Ted Danson. or I'd take Michael Shore, Cousin Moe. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd, take, yeah. I'd take any of them. I feel like Jeopardy would fit well with Janet's gifts mm. and abilities. Yeah. Yeah. She'd be so good at it. She'd be too good at it. She would. I don't want to bring yeah. her. I don't want to bring her on anymore. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> intimidating. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Gary's in the lead at 4,200. Michael is in second at 3,000. And Sharon is at 1,800. Uh, They get the categories Other British Isles, You Know the Drill, Musicians' Nicknames, At Rest in Washington, D.C., Phenomena, and I assume they were going for D-D-D-D-D, although Alex did not give it that cadence. Not sure if he. Yeah. Not sure if he got the reference. I didn't until you just did it. 
correctly oh, yeah. just now. It's it has I been... noticed that he said D the wrong number of times, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, no, it's been stuck in my head ever since that episode. Just just on constant loop. I just remember that he had an awkward moment during the interviews with Gary, and I just wanted to like oh, yeah. give give Gary some love. Because Alex asked about Gary's favorite dramatic author. And Gary responded, Donna Tartt, who is a novelist. Mm -hmm. And I think Alex was trying to ask about, like, a screenwriter or a playwright. Mm. Um, But since he said dramatic author, I think Gary, who's, you know, more immersed in the, you know, that world, you know, went went with with an author who was not a screenwriter or a playwright. Sure. Um, I think maybe assuming that Alex would have said those if those were what he meant. Anyway, right. yeah, they got it sorted out, but yeah, <laughs> I yeah. just felt for him. Like, there's <laughs> nothing to throw you off like an awkward interview. Oh, the interviews are the worst part of the show. They're terrible. Yeah, when the game's going, it's like, cool, I, I understand this, I can handle this. But he walks up to the podium and it's like, I have to talk like a real person now. And I have uh-huh. not prepared for this. Mm-hmm. Hope he doesn't Maybe ask me time. about that thing, right? Yep. Ugh. Yep. Awful. Yeah, I think Jeopardy contestants. I don't want to generalize, but I think that people dread the interview a lot more than the gameplay. Oh, it's because we all feel prepared for. We've studied for the gameplay. We've practiced for the gameplay. And I, I don't know about anybody else, but I think my life is not interesting to anyone outside of my family. And even then. Most of the stuff in my day-to-day life, not interesting to people in my family. So, like, having to go on TV and talk about something about myself, I'm like, none of none of my life is worth talking about for that long. Mm-hmm. Like, just yeah. let me play the game. Right. And then there's all these internet haters who are like, oh, the insipid Jeopardy interviews. Like, yeah, we're sorry. We don't want to do them either. Yeah, it's it's... It is not our choice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're here because somebody thought that you would think it was relatable content. Yeah. All right. <laughs> anyway. The $2,000 clue in the D, 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 D. The first D is in quotation marks. D, E, E is going to appear in every uh, correct response. The clue is a 2011 measurement says this part of the Pacific Ocean reaches 36,070 feet down. Sharon rang in and, and said, what is the deepest part? And that's, it's not wrong, and it fits the category, but it's not the the proper name, which is the Challenger Deep, which, right. if we think back, I believe, to your bathysphere talk, didn't, I think you talked about that somewhere, didn't you? I may not have used the term Challenger Deep. Um... I think we did talk about maximum depth of the Pacific Ocean at one point. Yeah, it, it's yeah. It, it, it it's possible. Memory. I may have. Yeah, I I feel like maybe she should have gotten to be more specific. You know, she it was it was factually correct and it fit the category. I yeah. think perhaps she should have gotten it. She probably wouldn't have. I mean, if she'd known it was Challenger Deep, she would have said Challenger Deep. So probably wouldn't have right. mattered. But. We get Daily Double number two in the You Know the Drill category. It's the 17th pick, and it's at the $800 level. Sharon finds it and wagers 2200 of her 13800 
At that point, Michael has 8,600. Gary has 3,000. So Sharon's really taken off mm-hmm. in this double Jeopardy round. She was kind of in the mix in the first round um, and then just started getting in on the buzzer, pulling a lot of correct answers and, and really took off in double Jeopardy. She gets the clue. Archaeologists in Pakistan found Neolithic bodies showing that drills were used to fix these more than 7,000 years ago. And she correctly responds, uh, what are teeth? It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. People have been poking holes in other people's heads for a long time. Mm -hmm. Daily Double 3 comes in the at rest in Washington, D.C. category at the $1,200 level. Gary finds that one. He is in third place. He has 5,000. Michael has 8,600, and Sharon is up at 16,400. Uh, so he, it's his time to make a move. So he, he wagers 3,000, and he gets the clue. At the Glenwood Cemetery, Emanuel Leutze, who famously painted George Washington doing this. And he knows that it is crossing the Delaware. Kind of looks like he, he sort of regrets not betting at all there, but uh, he erred on the side of caution. Yeah. That's that's a face that I feel like we see a lot is the one where the person makes a conservative bet and then they reveal the uh, the clue and and the person clearly knows it and regrets and not going all in. But, you know, that's the game. That is the game. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Sharon is in the lead with 15,200. Michael is in second place with 9,800. Gary's still in the game with 8,800. We get the category World Elections and the clue. In 2014, this democratic nation broke the record for total turnout in a single election with more than 500 million voters. Gary wagers 8,599. So he responds, what is Russia? That's incorrect. So he drops down. Michael has wagered 7801. He's covering an all-in from Gary. He correctly responds, what is India? And Sharon has wagered 4401. Um, uh, cover bet, she also responds, what is India? And that's correct. Um, and she had the smiley face. Mm-hmm. So Sharon is our winner going into Thursday. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Alex pointed out when Gary guessed what is Russia, that Russia does not have a population that big, uh, which mm-hmm. made me realize that I had kind of that I had totally glossed over the number. Uh, I, it's a very large number. I believe there are only two countries that have 500 million or more people. And that would be India and China, I think. Right. Because isn't the United yeah. States number three in population? I think that's... Yeah. Oh, we're, we're at 331. Million. Oh. Um, really? But yeah, China, huh. China is the highest. India is the second. United States is third. Mm-hmm. Um, then it's Indonesia, Pakistan, Brazil. Brazil, Nigeria, Bangladesh, yeah, Russia, yeah, Bang- Mexico. Bangladesh has a shockingly huge population. Mm-hmm. That is, that's a that's a trivia thing that I don't think has come up on Jeopardy very much, but it's good to know that Bangladesh has the highest population density of any country in the world. Yeah, I don't think I knew that. So yeah, there are only actually two possible countries given that number, and that was China or India. And yeah. I suppose it's debatable whether China is a de- democratic nation. Right. Yes. Yeah. I also kind of glossed over the number. I mean, I saw it was a big number, but I didn't really think about the number. Um, and I guess Brazil, mm-hmm. I think thinking about some high profile elections there and remembering vaguely that voting is, 
feel like it's maybe compulsory or there's some kind of penalty for not voting in Brazil. Mm. Um, All right. On Thursday, we get Tim Latham, an accountant from Boston, Massachusetts, Molly Bierman, an engineering program manager from San Francisco, California, and Sharon Lawson, an administrative assistant from Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada, whose one-day cash winnings total $19,601, which Alex points out is closer to like $28,000 Canadian dollars, and it's tax-free there. Made, Made sure to let us know that. Uh, We get the Jeopardy round categories, give us a date, fictional TV towns and cities, stock symbols, Pennsylvania Geo, hairstyles, and ends in double L. Circling back, I am correct that voting is compulsory in Brazil, Um, and if you don't vote, you can't get a passport issued or renewed. Nice. Yeah. Um, I thought this was a fun board. I did too. I did. Uh, I did fairly well, except the. Uh, I confidently guessed a lot of wrong things in the Pennsylvania category. <laughs> mm. And when the correct res- response was given, I was like, "Oh, duh!" If I'd given it more thought, I would have got there. For instance, the eight hundred dollar clue SB House in the southern town of Bedford served as Washington's headquarters during this rebellion in 1794, and I just immediately went, oh, Shays Rebellion. But I believe Shays Rebellion was before that, uh, during the Articles of Confederation, if I recall. Mm. I, I could be wrong about this, but I believe that was one of the like uh, motivating factors for drafting the Constitution, to be like, hey, if this happens, we kind of need a federal government to deal with it. So yeah. that, was, that was the Whiskey Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And for the $1,000 clue, the correct answer was Poconos. I was like, uh, Northeast, uh, Catskills. Yeah, Catskills are more... I don't think they're the Catskills No, they're they're in Pennsylvania. Yeah, they're, they're in New, New York. York. Yeah. The Poconos I got easily because that's uh, those resorts are the places where people in my region go for, you know... Sure. Yeah. For your indoor water park needs. Mm-hmm. Um, skiing, also. I was not sure that Sharon's answer should have been accepted at the $200 level of N's in LL. The clue was it's seen front and center on a Jolly Roger flag. She said, what's a skull and crossbones? Which is what appears on the Jolly Roger flag, but it, it only ends with LL if you only say skull. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was also like, I was sure they were going to take that away, but they did not. Yeah. Yeah. We got a another reference from one of your deep dives uh, in this game. At the $1,000 level in the give us a date category, uh, the clue is 1605. Gunpowder plotters pick this day to blow up Parliament, but are foiled. And that's... You guys. The 5th of November. Yeah. It is, f- yes. <laughs> you guys. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, if anybody was not listening to that one, um, that was an, an aside, a tangent, um, when we were talking about second person pronouns. I uh, I shared that the origin of the phrase "you guys" um, traces back to Guy Fox. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was fun. That was fun to see that come back up, and I got that easily. I think because I had been thinking about that recently. Sure. We also got my favorite show at the four hundred dollar level yeah. of fictional TV towns and cities. Uh, on this show, the title character slayed them. She really slayed them in Sunnydale, California. That's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I was wearing my Sunnydale High Class of 1999 sweatshirt uh, <laughs> while I was watching the game. So Cosmic. Yes. Yeah. Uh, 
we get the first daily double at the $1,000 level of that category, fictional TV towns and cities. Sharon finds it and wagers 1800 of her $4,200. At that point, Tim has 3400 and Molly has 1000 Sharon gets the clue the log lady and the late Laura Palmer were residents of this fictional Pacific Northwest community. And she said, I'm probably going to kick myself. I have no idea. Um, that is Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Which I've never watched, but I knew that. And I'm not sure how. It's just, it seems that Twin Peaks has such a, like a mystique. Mm-hmm. I knew it because I've watched half of the pilot. Mm. Yeah, and Laura Palmer is the, the girl who's drowned, right? Yes. Yep, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, I may go on with it at some point, but I also have been thinking it's normally my approach. Like, I, you know, I, I'm sort of a completionist. Like, I, I mm-hmm. don't tend to um, break off reading books in the middle or anything like that. I tend to finish what I start, at least in terms of consuming media. Mm-hmm. And so I tend to, like, pick a few TV series and watch them, you know, every single episode. Um, and I had been thinking recently about how that wasn't really serving me well from a trivia point of view Mm. Um, because there are dozens of popular sitcoms of which I have seen zero episodes. Right. And then there's others where I've seen like all 150, Mm -hmm. um, which, uh, which doesn't work so well. Um, No, not for, not for general knowledge trivia anyway. Yeah. So instead Um, you've taken to watching the first half of every pilot ever is what I'm hearing. well, I mean that was that was the that was the goal when I watched half of the the pilot of Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. I haven't <laughs> been um, keeping up so well with my my goal to to watch episodes here and there of things mm. that are yeah. So, but that's that's how I that's how I knew Twin Peaks is that it was one of the one of the few that were on my on my list of like everybody knows about such and such, but I've seen zero episodes, so I'm going to make myself at least watch one. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round. Tim is leading with 7,400. Sharon has 2,800. Molly has 2,600. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. Everybody, characters in Beatles songs, from the Sanskrit, literature, draw me, and like one of your French girls. (laughs) And then Alex noted Leo DiCaprio, although it's a Kate Winslet line. Yeah. That would be a very different scene if... Leo DiCaprio was saying it. <laughs> it would. So we get the second daily double in the everybody category. It's at pick number four, the early in the round. Molly found it, and she wagered everything she had, 3,000. She was in third place behind Sharon's 3,600 and Tim's 7,800. She gets the clue, bile aids digestion by breaking up large molecules of fat. It's stored in the gallbladder, but made by this organ. And she takes a while and just really guesses what is liver, uh, the liver. Uh, but then that is correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this round was just kind of Tim getting a lot of answers correct, and the other two not really being able to get in much uh, on the buzzer yeah. or just nobody ringing in there were a number of triple stumpers that nobody yeah. guessed at we came back to my um 
ongoing nemesis in the literature category at 2000. I cannot keep Upton Sinclair and Sinclair Lewis straight. <laughs> I cannot do it. I can't do it. Um, uh, the $2,000 level there, it was in 1930. This Main Street author became the first American to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. That one's Sinclair Lewis. I cannot do it, Kyle. I can't get them sorted out. I, they won't be sorted. I am not the person to go to for help with that. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm sorry. Oh, but we had another of my deep dives at the $400 level of that category. Uh, All published in the 1950s. Seven books make up this series by C.S. Lewis. Those are the chronic, what? Coles of Narnia. Yeah. (laughs) That literature category I thought had some, uh, was moderately difficult. The Sanskrit category I thought was, for for me at least, extremely easy. Yes. Um... The $2,000 clue was, in English, the title of this manual could be translated as Rules of Pleasure. Like, that's the Kama Sutra. uh, To me, a $2,000 clue would be something that was not, I I don't know, that, like, that's a title that everyone who has no exposure to Hinduism or, you know, like, traditional Indian culture or anything, they know that. Like, I, I felt like it should be a bit more. And then on the other end, the characters in Beatles songs, I don't... I like the Beatles. I'm not a big Beatles fan, but I thought that, I, I thought that some of those, uh, at least the 1600 and 2000, I thought those were pretty deep pulls. Hmm. But maybe I got the 1600, the 2000. I'm not sure I've ever heard of that one. Yeah, I mean that's what I'm saying. Like it seemed there, there seemed to be a disparity in difficulty among the two thousand dollar quiz. Yes, I agree. There was a disparity in different difficulty. We get Daily Double Three in the Like One of Your French Girls category at the $1,600 level. Sharon finds it and wagers 5000 of her $6,000. Um, uh, Tim is up at 17000 at that point, so Sharon is trying to get kind of back into contention before they get to Final Jeopardy. Um, Molly's at 7600 so Tim has a lock game uh, at that point. And Sharon gets the clue about this French novelist. Elizabeth Browning wrote, true genius, but true woman. Um, Sharon guesses who is Colette. Um, the correct response there is George Sand, who I don't know very well. I don't know. I don't know the works very well, but I, to me, that time period and uh, female French novelist, I don't know of other options there. Yeah. So. Colette was much later, I believe. So, but, I mean, if it's the only name that can come to mind, it's not a bad guess. Right, yeah. It's better to say something than nothing, yeah. for sure. So, yeah, that knocks her down to just 1,000, kind of takes her takes her out of the game. That was the her chance to get back into it. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, Sharon's at 3,400, Molly is at 8,400, and Tim has it locked at 20,200. It's impressive. Yeah. No, he played a good game. Uh, They get the category Statesman, and the clue, the first Asian to accept the Nobel Peace Prize was the Prime Minister of this country, who in 1967 renounced use of nuclear weapons. And in my mind, there were two possibilities, but one that kind of stood out more. Sharon wagered 3,000. Why not? It's a lot game. You're Mm kind of playing for second place, sort of. Uh, and yeah. she it's, it's double locked actually even if she goes all in she doesn't catch up to molly that's true that's true but she gets it right what is japan so she adds three thousand. molly recognizing that it was double locked probably wagered nothing 
She wrote, what is Vietnam? Crossed out Vietnam and wrote South Korea, but that is also incorrect. Alex asked her what her third guess would be, and she said Japan, of course. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> because why not? Uh, and Tim wagered just 1,000, uh, and he got yep. it correct. What is Japan? So with 21,200, he will be our champion going into Friday. Yes, indeed. So on Friday, April 24th, we have the contestant Sarah Jett Rayburn, a writer and stay-at-home mom from Hutto, Texas. Sean Dugas, a library associate from Metairie, Louisiana, and Tim Latham, an accountant from Boston, Massachusetts, with one-day cash winnings totaling $21,200. And in the first round, we get the categories Get Your Kicks, the Nifty Fifties, State Flag Subjects, Double Letter Times Two, It's the World Economy, and Stupid, Stupid in quotation marks. I'm surprised they didn't didn't go for the low-hanging fruit of calling it stupid answers. Although mm. although they were making a play off of the previous category. Yes. So I can see that being there. But uh, I had another example of a fact that I learn and should say relearn every time I hear it. And I know that I have learned it, but I can never remember it. Uh, It's in the nifty 50s at the $400 level. The clue is, after achieving a miraculous feat in 1954, he wrote The Four-Minute Mile. Uh, Sarah rang in and guessed who is Jim Thorpe, uh, which I guess not a terrible guess for, like, an athlete of the early 20th century. Uh, Tim rang in then and got correct, uh, who is Roger Bannister. And I just, I can never... When the question is asked, I can never remember his name. Mm-hmm. If it were just in, like, you know, casual conversation and I heard his name, I'd be like, oh, yeah, he's the guy who did the four-minute mile. But as soon as the question is posed to me, I cannot remember his name. Mm-hmm. She may have been primed on Jim Thorpe by sitting in the audience because I think he came up in that, uh, the round about, the, the category about Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. He did. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so probably, yeah, I'm sure she, he was... Uh, in her mind. Yeah. Uh, we get the Daily Double at the $600 level in the Nifty 50s category. It's pick number 17, and Sean uncovers it. And he wagered 2000 of his 2000 He was in third place. Uh, Sarah was at 2600 and Tim was at 3800 So he went all in uh, to try to take the lead. And he got the clue, many workers united in 1955 when these two labor unions merged. Uh, And he correctly identifies the AFL and CIO. Mm -hmm. Do not remember what CIO stands for, but I believe the AFL is American Federation of Labor. I feel like the C is for, like, Congress of Industrial something. Congress of Industrial Organizations. Nailed it. Yeah. All right, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Tim is at 4,600, Sean is in the lead at 5,600, and Sarah is at 2,800, and she will pick first from the categories, here's looking at you, Clid. (laughs) Yeah, it was a very clever one. (laughs) Um, Spy terms, 20th century authors, Land Ho, with H-O in quotation marks, movie villain quotes, and overlapping word combos, uh, which Alex gave an example of, but they give you two things and you put them together to make a word. 
the uh, movie villain quotes four hundred dollar clue. It was the first uh, first pick, and we got to hear Alex do um, a debatable Alan Rickman impression <laughs> as Hans Gruber, and I'm not going to try it. But the clue is: Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mister Cowboy? And Tim got it. That's Die Hard. We've talked about Die Hard. Do you Die think Hard. Alex... Yes, we have. Do you think Alex Trebek has seen Die Hard? I feel like he must have. I I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of movies that, that any given person will be like, oh yeah, I mean, that's a classic that everyone should have seen. So, I don't know. Maybe he has. I, th- I would think so. Yeah. Maybe not the others. But I would yeah. think the first one. Yeah. Alright. Yeah, I'd believe it. Um, I'll have to ask him if I ever am in the same room as him again. Yeah. Have you seen uh, the movie at the $1,600 level, Whiplash? I'm embarrassed to say I still haven't because it's like... Uh. And every time someone finds out I haven't seen it, they're like, but it's but it's like one of the few movies about like you. <laughs> like, well, it's not, <laughs> it's not really, but I get it. <laughs> yeah, no, Mr. I- Holland's opus is more inspiring, I guess. Yeah, aside from the aside from the the icky part in the middle with the yeah, ooh, yikes! Yeah. You're right. Oh, that didn't age well. Yeah, uh, not not. I guess it maybe maybe it didn't maybe it's not an aging thing. Maybe it just uh, that that was never okay. Actually, now that I think about it. Yeah, I take out the part with the weird romantic uh, interplay with a student, and I will accept it as an inspirational movie. Like. That he has redemption with his son and all that, and that's that's good. But yeah, that part for me is like nope, nope, mm-hmm. cannot accept that as like an inspiring figure for me. Yep, yep, fair, good so, point. Yeah. Okay, we get Daily Double Two as the sixteenth pick at the eight hundred dollar level of spy terms. Tim finds it and he wagers three thousand of his eight thousand two hundred. Uh, Sarah is in the lead at that point with twelve thousand. Sean has six thousand eight hundred. And he gets the clue. Anything related to espionage can be said to be this three-word term, a translation of de cap et de pay. Probably Alex did a French accent on that. Oh, you know he did a French accent. <laughs> uh, it was This was preempted in my area, so I, I didn't get to enjoy that. But I, I just know Alex Trebek enough to know that he never misses an opportunity to really say it in French mm-hmm. um, in any case that's cloak and dagger and Tim does get that one correct yep. so ca- almost catches up with the lead yep we had a coin flip in the land ho category at the $1,200 level uh, the clue is Sapporo is the major city on this island now if I mean Sapporo it sounds pretty Japanese so you can figure it's one of the Japanese islands uh, now, you may know Japanese geography and just know it, uh, but if you're like, okay, I have to guess a Japanese island, there are two of them that start with H-O. There is Honshu, which is what Sean guessed, which was incorrect, uh, and mm-hmm. Hokkaido, which Tim came in with after that. Yeah. Um, I was I, I guessed Honshu too fast um, and then slapped my forehead because I'm pretty sure Honshu has some of the sort of much more... Uh, like larger cities, right? Isn't I b- Tokyo? I on, believe. I believe. Honshu? Yeah, I believe Tokyo is on yeah. Honshu, and and probably yeah. Kyoto also. And yeah. yeah, I believe that's true too. Yes, so you could know it that way too. 
Mm-hmm. We got the third Daily Double in the Here's Looking at Euclid category. Uh, pick number 27. So pretty late. It was at the $2,000 level. Tim found it, and he wagered 6000 He was in a pretty strong lead at 20400 Sarah was at 16000 and Sean was at 7600 uh, so he was looking to make a big move, try and make, make Final Jeopardy a bit more uh, comfortable for him. He got the clue, Euclid put in some time on the elliptical, and this German admirer of Euclid found it to be the shape of orbits. And he took a little bit of time and took a guess with who is Copernicus, because that's probably the only astronomer he could think of. Uh, but the correct response is Kepler. Johannes Kepler. Mm-hmm. So he lost 6,000 there, dropped into Oof. second place behind yeah. Sarah. Uh, they did finish the board, though, and uh, he managed to make up a little bit of the ground going into final. I like seeing Crockett Johnson come up in an unusual uh, context in the Euclid category. Children's author Crockett Johnson did a painting illustrating oh, Euclid's yeah. proof of this famous theorem. Uh, that's the Pythagorean theorem. You know Crockett Johnson better as the author of Harold and the Purple Crown. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I love Harold and the Purple Crown. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I love Harold and the Purple Crown, too. And I didn't get to see the painting because it got preempted, but I looked up some of his uh, his mathematical paintings, and they they look nothing like Harold in the Purple Crayon, almost as if he's a person who you know <laughs> is just really passionate about art yeah. enough so to write a <laughs> write a great children's book about you know creating things with your with your art supplies. Yeah, weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Sarah is in the lead with 16,000, Tim has 15,200, and Sean has 8,000, and they get the final Jeopardy category, Men and Machines. And the clue is, John Moore Brabazon, the first pilot licensed by England, had learned about engines working for this man, first half of a famous pair. Sean has wagered everything but $2, 7,998. And he writes, who is support your libraries? Um, Yeah. Great message. (laughs) Wrong answer. Um, (laughs) Incorrect. (laughs) I mean, correct, but but not not a correct response to this clue. I am not sure that was a good wager from his position. I, I thought about that. I did not think that it was a good wager either, although... You know, presumably, if Tim's going to do the, like, second place minimum bet, Mm -hmm. he would only drop down to 14, what is that, 14.4, you know, 14,400. So Sean would need to wager at least 6,500 or whatever of his 8,000. So it's like, don't know that it was necessarily bad. It might not be optimal. Yeah. Tim uh, did not make a um, sort of an optimal second place wager. Uh, He wagered everything he had, uh, 15,200, but he got it correct. Who is Rolls? So he goes up to 30,400, but unfortunately for him, Sarah also has it correct. She had crossed out Aston, thinking of uh, Aston Aston Martin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And has written who is Rolls. And with a $15,000 wager, uh, that's a cover bet and a little bit. 
she is the winner and we will see her again on monday yep so that's the week that is the week um we should take this moment to uh to plug our patreon page um if you're able to throw us a few dollars a month that would be so appreciated um we have levels from three dollars on up um everything starting at three dollars gets access to bonus content the higher levels we um start getting you involved in some of the kind of behind the scenes stuff choosing deep dive topics and uh potentially bringing you on the show at some of the levels you can find us on patreon.com slash potent potables we do have some new great bonus content there which is that kyle put together an outtakes reel i feel like real is kind of antiquated language now yeah i don't know what else i got an outtakes track yeah yes yeah anyway we've got outtakes there (laughs) we're hilarious i think and uh, you get to hear us trying to pronounce names and towns that we don't remember how to pronounce. You can find out what we really think about politics. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, I thought it was pretty fun. I really enjoyed reliving some of, some of those moments. Yeah, so check it out. Patreon.com slash Potent Potables. Okay. I have some guesses. Okay. Okay, my first guess. Okay. Are we talking about Sinclair Lewis? We are not talking about Sinclair Lewis, but I did very seriously consider that. Yeah, I figured. I I thought that might be, you might be uh, leading into, this is the time that I will finally get Sinclair Lewis and Upton Sinclair straightened out. So it's not that. Okay. Um, Second guess. Are we talking about George Sand? We are not talking about George Sand, although, again, I did consider that. I'm realizing all three of my guesses are from, like, the same board. That's okay. Uh, no, you wouldn't, because you talked about Joan of Arc recently. So never mind, I'm not going to guess St. Saint... Mm, that was so tempting! Yeah, I'm not going to guess St. Bernadette. Bernadette. That, that would have been so great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I rolled her out because I talked about Joan of Arc. That doesn't count as a guess. That was not one okay. of my guesses. Oh, let's just count that one as my third guess, because I don't remember what my third one was going to be. All right, what do we got? Okay. What are we doing? Okay, um, so I think it was last week or the week before you mentioned having um, missed a clue about this topic, and then I saw it come up on Monday, and I thought to myself, Monday. self, you also don't know anything about this topic. You've just been smiling and nodding as Kyle confesses his ignorance. Um, we're in the category Flea Circus, and at the $800 level, oh. the clue is in 64 AD, a fire broke out in Rome in the shops surrounding this large hippodrome, no doubt causing many to flee. And that is the Circus Maximus. It was a triple stumper. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. And you had a clue about it in um, in your game with Lauren Stripling yep. Brody. Lauren and Sean. And, um, yep. Yep. And Sean. Yes. And I think you got the Coliseum and I did. Sean got the rebound. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that is correct. If, I like the clue very clearly gave it as like abbreviated CM, and I was like, "There's a C and an M in Coliseum." <laughs> it's like the Calvin and Hobbes approach to acronyms, right? Right, like, girls. <laughs> yeah, get the, they're gross. Gross, yeah. Plug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, it's a get rid of smelly girls and they, the last S comes from the end of girls. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, I thought I'd look into the Circus Maximus a little bit. And uh, after this, neither of us are ever going to forget it again. So uh, the Circus Maximus uh, goes back to the 6th century BCE when uh, the fifth king of Rome uh, in the Roman kingdom period, um, Tarquinius Priscus, created a racetrack uh, in the Valley of Murcia, which is between the Palatine and Aventine Hills. There was a stream that ran through that valley, um, which would have made the location prone to flooding. But in any case, they, they put a racetrack there, um, which, re- which would remain active for over a thousand years, actually. Whoa. Yeah. So, um, so this racetrack is enormous. Uh, it is 621 meters in length, 118 meters in width. Uh, it's, a, it's a big old racetrack. And it stays active through the, the Roman Kingdom period, runs 753 to 509 BCE. Uh, the Republic is 509 to 27 BCE. The Roman Empire uh, is 27 BCE to, you usually put it at 476, but like it gets a little complicated there with splits and stuff. Um, and past that, uh, it went through multiple phases of building and rebuilding. And now it's a public park. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. One Roman historian claimed that it accommodated up to 250,000 people. Contemporary historians don't think that that's correct. They think that at its maximum capacity, because the capacity did change with with the various phases of rebuilding and like numerous fires and stuff, they think at its largest point, it would probably accommodate it more like 150,000, possibly up to 200,000, uh, probably not 250,000. But in any case, enormous, enormous hippodrome, huge capacity. The earliest races there back in the 6th century BC would have been held with nothing more than turning posts to mark the racetrack and kind of banks for the spectators to sit on. Hmm. But over time, it gets developed into this whole sort of elaborate setup. Tarquinius Priscus built wooden raised perimeter seating with an awning to provide some shelter from the sun and rain that ran along the street on the Palatine side of the racetrack. Um, and it was pretty limited. It would have been only for upper classes. Um, and that's how it was for a little bit. And then his grandson, the seventh and final king during the Roman kingdom period, Tarquinius Superbus, added seating... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just uh, love to be called the superb, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good it's a good name, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Tarquinius Superbus added seating for plebeians, but at this point, it's still probably a pretty rudimentary structure—a trackway through farmland with, you know, with some wooden seating. It's possible that drainage had been built at this point. We're not really sure when exactly that happened. It would have happened eventually, given the situation with a stream in that area. But with a stream running through, it's likely that the wooden seats would have needed frequent rebuilding, just a lot of maintenance. Mm-hmm. Also around this time, there uh, turning posts are added. They're called metai, uh, three conical stone pillars at each end to kind of mark the turning point for these races. 
Um, and then there's an open drainage canal running from one end to the other that serves as kind of a dividing barrier. I have a bunch of details about what was added at one at what point. Um, it's probably too into the weeds, but I will mention that as this continues to develop um, in the fourth century BCE, uh, wooden starting stalls are constructed. Um, they're they're staggered to equalize the distance from each starting place to a central to the central barrier mm-hmm. and they start with 25 starting stalls and over time they reduced the number and widened those starting stalls due to like changes in how chariot racing was done they wanted bigger stalls that it could accommodate larger teams of horses i think i'm not sure if this is in the fourth century but at some point the gates are spring-loaded with a mechanism that opens them simultaneously which Ooh. seems like a pretty cool engineering thing for uh, for that, for like 2,400 years ago, right? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a technology we still use. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, sometime in the 2nd century BCE, they start adding like large lap counters along that central barrier. First, they used like sculpted eggs. And then mm-hmm. uh, like 150 years later, they change it to these enormous bronze dolphin-shaped counters. A typical race at that point was seven laps. Several centuries later, they would reduce it to five laps. To count those seven laps, they wanted something that would be visible to the crowd, visible to the charioteers. And so they start adding these things um, as both, you know, they are both decorative and functional along along that dividing barrier. Julius Caesar further develops the circus starting in 50 BCE. He extends the seating. He adds a canal between the track and the seating to protect spectators. Chariot racing is like a pretty rough sport um, and to drain the track. And they think that it was during this time that they constructed stone seating for the lower tiers. The upper tiers would have still been wooden. Hmm. The word for the seating structures for these kinds of things is uh, cavea. It's Latin for cave. um, And it would the inner cavea would have been for like the upper echelons of society, senators, equites, upper cavea are for plebeians. Uh, The exterior had shops at ground level. There were numerous entrances to minimize crowding and like waiting times to get in and out. Uh, Some, some of the writers of the time sort of made much of the fact that you could kind of come and go with convenience from this place that had these huge crowds. In 31 BC, um, a fire damages the wooden bleachers, and that damage is probably repaired by Caesar Augustus, although he only claimed credit for adding an obelisk and a pulvinar. A pulvinar is the seat for the editor, the sponsor of the of the game or race or whatever is taking place. So there is this sort of very visible seat for uh, for the person who's funding the thing. Mm-hmm. And the obelisk he added was the first in Rome. Um, it was erected midway along the dividing barrier, and it had been taken from Egypt after his victory there. There was another small fire in 36 CE. Um, it started in one of the shops and burned through several of them. And there's a record of uh, Emperor Tiberius compensating shopkeepers. And then in 64 CE, the Great Fire of Rome mm-hmm. breaks out. It breaks out at the Circus Maximus, um, at the like the semicircular and kind of on the far end from the from the starting gates. 
um, spreads along the full length of the circus. It sweeps through the city, burns for six days before coming under control. Then it reignites and burns for three days more. Nero was the emperor at the time, I'm sure you know. Um, he blamed the Christians for it, but there's also, there were also rumors that he started it himself. And the Circus Maximus was rebuilt over the next several years with the same footprint and design as it had previously had. The central barrier uh, was called the Spina, and it developed over the centuries. It starts as just kind of a kind of a ditch down the middle, and then like a like a brick kind of I think it was brick divider built, and then they there are all of these numerous additions that are added over the years. There are obelisks and statues and fountains and all kinds of other ornamentations. It's a highly visible location and a place where people are motivated to to build because. Uh, because it's, you know, a place where people will see what you've funded. Emperor Domitian, uh, who reigned from 81 to 96 CE, built a palace on the Palatine Hill and connected it somehow, I'm not totally clear on that, I'm not sure if historians are, Hmm. um, to the Circus Maximus, such that he could observe the games from high above in his palace. Yeah. Emperor Trajan, um, who reigned after him from 98 to 117, rebuilt the circus entirely in stone. And from then on, it stood largely unchanged, at least in terms of like the exterior stuff, um, until it fell into disuse. So that's kind of the history of like the structure of the Circus Maximus. But mm-hmm. so what's it for? Obviously, chariot racing, right? right. Um, some other functions, too. Um, the... The Ludi uh, is the, the name for the Roman games. Um, they're, they were public games. They were held often in conjunction with religious festivals. They ranged in duration and scope. Uh, there were some that were annual. The biggest ones were September of every year, the Ludi Romani. There were others that were um, like intermittent or occasional, um, often in fulfillment of some kind of religious vow, maybe attached with to a military victory or uh, intermittent like celebrations and commemorations of past victories. Hosting and funding these games was an act with high like political visibility. It was a way of building your public image, sort of gaining goodwill and also like higher status because you're kind of showing off that you can, you know, fund these great spectacles. One scholar or early-ish scholar of antiquity talked about Ludi as breaking into four categories, um, the Ludi Gymnicus, uh, the athletic, um, Ludi Circensis, the ones that happened in the circus, Ludi Gladiatorius, uh, the gladiatorial games, and Ludi Scenicus, the um, like theatrical spectacles. And chariot racing was the main function of the Circus Maximus, um, but there were other events there as well. There were beast hunts. Uh, there were hmm. often, per- there were parades that would kind of kick off the beginning of a, uh, like, Ludi, which would take place at various venues in the city. The Colosseum was built by the late first century CE, and it housed, once it was built, housed most gladiatorial events um, and the smaller beast hunts. Um, but it's likely that some of those kinds of events did take place at the Circus Maximus before the construction of the Colosseum. Chariot racing, in the Roman Empire could be could be viewed by women. Women were allowed to be in the crowd. Um, they were barred from some of the other more violent kinds of ludi. So I thought that was that was a fun tidbit to come yeah, across. That's um, awfully chivalrous. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, there, 
it got messy with the chariot racing, though. Um, it's unclear when chariot racing as a sport began. Um, the first evidence of chariots as a form of transportation we find around 1700 BCE. And then it's not really clear when chariot racing as a sport takes shape. But, you know, that seems it seems like a pretty natural progression from uh, having chariots to racing chariots. Um, and then structure gets kind of added in until we have hippodromes and so on. Hmm. Um, in Roman racing, four horse chariots, uh, quadrigae, were the most common. Two horse chariots were also used, um, I think, more earlier. And then sometimes they would use chariots with up to like 10 horses, but that would get really unwieldy. So four horses was the, was the most common. Hmm. Charioteers would try to maneuver in front of each other um, to cause their opponents to crash into the spinae or off the track. You can think of the, the chariot racing scene in Ben-Hur. Um, and we're back to Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so it got it got intense. Chariot crashes were called naufragia, uh, which also means shipwreck. Hmm. In Greek chariot racing, the charioteers would hold the reins in their hands, but in Roman chariot racing, I think to I'm not quite sure why, but they would wrap the reins around their waist, and so in the event of a crash, uh, the charioteer would be dragged around by the horses. Hmm until he was killed or managed to cut himself loose. They did carry a knife for that purpose, but it was still really dangerous. A system of factions, like teams, uh, sprung up over the course of time. Um, The factions were associated with particular gods. Um, Political figures would would sponsor one faction or another. Um, The different factions had had like fan bases. The fan bases would have brawls. Nothing is new, it turns out. <laughs> right. Nothing, Nothing, Nothing is, is new is under new. the sun. <laughs> so the, the factions, um, they, they would wear uniforms. Red, white, blue, and green were the four main factions. Um, and then Emperor Domitian introduced purple and gold factions also under his sponsorship. And these different factions would often, they would field multiple chariots. And those chariots were kind of teammates that would kind of try to help each other. Uh, in their in their maneuvering, successful charioteer, charioteers uh, were lauded as celebrities. Um, often they were slaves, but the money would be awarded directly to the charioteer if he won the race. And so, if a charioteer won enough races, he could potentially buy his freedom. The most famous charioteer uh, was named Scorpus. He was a phenomenally successful racer in the first century. He won over two thousand races. But he died in a crash. I think he was 27 at mm. the time, which is pretty typical, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like <laughs> uh, it. Yeah. And the final official chariot race at the Circus Maximus happened under the Ostrogoth King Tortilla in 549 mm. CE. So over a thousand years after it was initially constructed. Uh, it fell into disuse. There was some excavation of it in the 16th century, but nothing ultimately came of that. In the 1930s, excavation started and I think was abandoned because of World War II is what I think I gathered. Okay. But then the project resumed in the 1970s. Uh, it was completed in the 1980s. A number of artifacts were recovered and the site is now a public park, which is used for concerts and rallies. Mm. So... Yeah. So that's the Circus Maximus. Wow. 
Wow. Awesome. You're never going to forget it again, and neither am I. That's the plan, anyway. <laughs> that is the plan. <laughs> um, so are you ready for a quiz? Oh. Oh, I'm ready for a quiz. Okay. So this is a quiz on bread and circuses. Okay. Because I'm funny. You are um. very funny. <laughs> that is that is true. Uh, yeah. Uh, thanks. Um, <laughs> all right. Question one. Rising concerns about celiac disease and gluten intolerance have made bread baking more complicated, leading bakers to experiment with gluten-free breads made from flours uh, made from rice, potato, almond, cassava, and other substitutes. There are three major gluten-containing grains that gluten-free bakers or recipes avoid. And of course, one is wheat. For five points each, name the other two. Oh my goodness. The other two gluten-containing grains. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Let's go with... What kind of bread do I eat? <laughs> let's go with rye and... I don't even know where to go here. Um... I, I genuinely do not have a second guess. All right. Um, so rye is correct. So nice job on yes. that. You get five points. Oof. The other one is barley. Um, oh, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which we encounter more in beer mm -hmm. these days. Mm -hmm. um, but it also has historically been used for bread often. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also would have given you credit for oats uh they are very 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 low in gluten um but they generally aren't they're, they're not gluten free okay. per se they they have like traces of that gluten protein okay i thought about um, saying oats so, but okay all right so question two i sort of tremble to say it but i'm asking a football question oh man um, <laughs> You know that I got this straight from Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. uh, what circus-related pun refers to the record-breaking offense of the St. Louis Rams during the 1999, 2000, and 2001 football seasons? Circus-related pun. Oh, is that the greatest show on turf? It is the yeah. greatest show on turf. Yeah. Okay. Ooh. Ooh. Nice work. All right, you're at 15. Going into question three. You are certainly familiar with the popular phrase, the greatest thing since sliced bread. Mm -hmm. Within 10 years, when did sliced bread happen? <sighs> Mark this down on things Kyle has never thought about. Uh, when did sliced bread happen? Okay, so... I'm assuming you mean, like, manufactured sliced loaves. Uh, uh, what I'm referring to more specifically um, is, like, a bread slicing machine that could be, like, used at a bakery to slice the entire loaf. Sure, okay. I am going to go with 1890. Uh, it's, it's later than you would think. It's 1928. In 1928, Bottle wow. Rowetter in Iowa invents a bread slicer that can slice an entire loaf of bread as a single operation. 
and people start being able to buy loaves of pre-sliced bread. Um, mm. Yeah. How about that? Mm-hmm. Apparently, during World War II, uh, the sale of pre-sliced bread was banned for a period of time. I think one of the reasons was that it needed a lot more waxed paper to keep it fresh. Mm. Um, and uh, they were concerned about paraffin shortages. Um, and okay. I think there were also concerns that like that it got stale more quickly, maybe. Interesting. Um, yeah. 1928 is the correct response on that one. So you're still at 15. Okay. All right, question four. I'm worried I've made this too hard, but you are a classical music guy, so... Ah, crap. I believe in you. Okay. This military march, now strongly associated with circuses, was composed by Czech composer Julius Fuchik and originally titled Grand March Chromatique, but he changed the title to reflect his interest in Roman imperial history. By what title is the composition now known? gosh i don't know the name of this all right do you want to hear the text of the question again to see if you can yeah. take a guess yeah all right um this military march now strongly associated with circuses was composed by czech composer julius fujik and originally titled grand march chromatique but he changed the title to reflect his interest in roman imperial history and all at the roman games in particular by what title is the composition now known? I mean, I mean, based on that, I would guess the Ludi March, but... That's not a bad guess. Uh, this is Entrance of the Gladiators. Oh, okay. Again, mark that up with things Kyle has never actually thought about. Mm. I have, I've real, I'm realizing now... Hard. That's okay. I'm realizing now I have always thought of that as, oh, the Circus March. Yeah. That is good um, to know. Entrance of the I Gladiators. Would... Mm-hmm. I was delighted to find the Roman Imperial connection because I didn't necessarily mean to have any questions about things, you know, related to the Roman games. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, the connection was there for me. Nice. Yeah. Question five. In Jewish culture, this braided bread is a typical part of a Sabbath meal. Uh, I'm going to guess the only thing that I think is braided bread, and that's challah. That is correct. Yay. You're correct. Yeah, um, I think that came up in one of, in in your final uh, regular season run game, also, right? Didn't Dino guess uh, Marble Run? Oh yeah, he, he did. I, th- yeah. I think yeah, and I think I think Rob got Hala. I think I knew it was Hala too. Man, Rob was he's just yeah. so fast on the buzzer in that game. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, we are heading into final. You're at twenty five. Oh, I should give you a category. Um, I'm gonna say. 19th century names. I'll go 25. Why not? All right. I know some names. All right, so for 50 points. One of the best-known circus performers of all time, whose 
legal name was Charles Stratton, started touring with P.T. Barnum when he was only five years old and considerably shorter than his adult height of three feet, four inches. Under what name did he perform? Oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, is, I, I'm going to go with Tom Thumb. You're correct! Oh, oh, oh yes! Yay. This is... <laughs> Part of my brain kept saying, Tiny Tim, it's Tiny Tim. But I'm like, no, that... That's somebody else. That's something very different. <laughs> yes. Nice. Yes. Oof. All right. Nice work. Um, yeah, you really, you really pulled it out in the end there. Um, that was great. Uh, I am sorry for the hard questions. That is okay. Sliced bread is really interesting history, though. 1928. Who would have thought, thought? Certainly not me. Yeah. So hopefully our listeners got some of those as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, and I had a couple of uh, couple of unused quiz unused quiz questions that I'm going to put onto our Patreon. This time yeah. I'm really going to do it. <laughs> yeah. When I hear this and feel guilty that I didn't do it, that's when I will do it. <laughs> um, Good. Yeah. Guilt, the best yeah. motivator. Mm-hmm. So thank you all for listening. Uh, it is wonderful to have you here with us, and it, it's just fun for us to do this anyway. Make sure to subscribe and uh, rate or review on whatever program or uh, podcatcher you're using. Uh, Emily mentioned our Patreon, so uh, go ahead and check that out. You'll find some new bonus content up there for our patrons. And even if you don't do either of those things, you can still support us by just telling your friends. If you want to find us on social media, we're on Twitter at PotentPotables1. We're on Facebook at PotentPotables. Our website is PotentPod.com, and you can email us at PotentPotablesCast at gmail.com. And we'll be coming back to you next week with another week of Jeopardy. So until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.